Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. And our special guest this week joining us all the way from the UK is Ian Schofield, executive editor at our sister publication, Scrip. Those of us who cover pandemic-related issues day-to-day have been focused on vaccine development for a while, but now the eyes of the world are hyper-focused on the issue as two candidates are about to be made widely available. To the dismay of some U.S. officials, however, U.K. regulators beat them to the approval punch. The U.K.'s MHRA announced earlier this week that it had approved the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, the first Western country to do so, which angered President Trump and others. Ian, you've been covering this. I think we were all a little surprised that MHRA made this decision so quickly. You know, Can you kind of tell us what happened here? Yeah, sure. Um, we were surprised here as well. The um, Obviously, the MHRA, the UK regulator, is the first one to approve the, um, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Um, and it has stirred a few feathers over here. Um, as far as we know, there was no particular political MHRA to hurry this review through. But what it did do was use a rolling review where it it reviewed the preclinical and other data as it came in, and then as as the later data came in, they already had a sort of base a, a base of data to work with, and they had several teams working in parallel, which meant that they could actually speed up the process. But they claim without um, cutting any corners, so they basically did all the all the necessary trials were done, the review was done um, to, to to normal regulatory standards. And they just managed to get it through very, very quickly. Now, there have been claims that they that it was done too quickly, but the MHRA has been at pains to point out that they they did everything they would have done for a normal product. Um, and they did up using um, a provision that was already in the UK legislation. Um, this is Regulation 174 which uh, allows the uh, emergency use authorization of a medicine in particular circumstances such as this. Now that that provision has been there for many years. It's part of the 2012 medicines regulations and it also implements a provision of EU law. So all the EU member states have the same ability to do this. So the one thing that happened here was a lot of the pro-Brexit politicians leaped on this as evidence of something that the UK couldn't have done while it was a member of the EU. Um, but this was this, this has been um, proved to be untrue because, uh, as I say, it was actually an EU provision that allowed the vaccine to be authorised using the emergency use procedure. There has been a little bit of triumphalism over the fact that the MHRA was the first to approve this product, but it has been quite low key and the MHRA itself has been quite sober in sticking to the facts and just explaining to the world at large that they've done everything by the book. So so no bragging, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a, that, that, that's interesting that they, um, you know, both, both that they they don't want to brag about it and that they you know that they were able to get it done. Um, the the, re, the reaction in the U.S. was was a little uh, you know was uh, interesting. I guess is kind of a nice way to put it. Uh, Tony Fauci, who is I'm I'm sure you know Ian is has said that the um, MHRA may have gone a little too fast and that they kind of you know that they they looked at things a little differently than the FDA would would do it. Um, 
I, I don't know. Maybe you could give us like a quick explanation of how, uh, you know, of, of, of how they did the review. If, if You know, I, I know it was a rolling review, but did they do they look at the individual patient reports or do they only look at the company kind of summary tables or how does that work? What, what the NHRA and I think the European Medicine Agency tend to do is to rely quite heavily on the documentation that's sent in by the companies. So obviously they, they scrutinize it very carefully. But I think possibly a difference is that the FDA would look at the raw data and do its own analyses of those, um, which obviously would make the, the procedure a bit longer. So the, the argument that Fauci was putting initially was when he suggested that the MHRA had um, pushed it through a little too quickly. I think he realized he'd, he'd overstepped a bit. And, of, and uh, as you'll probably hear later, he was, he's now rode back on those comments saying that it's really, they do things differently, not better and not worse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you still have to wonder if there may be a little bit of hesitancy you know, among, um, you know, once the rollout begins, you know, just, you know, for no other reason than everyone was just surprised that it, you know, it was done so quickly. Yeah, and this is a danger that people will will read criticism of this decision and, and translate that into um, reluctance to take the vaccine. And it may also be picked up by anti-vax campaigners as well to try and cast doubt on the safety and efficacy of the vaccine. So I think that's why the MHRA has been um, really going out there into the public eye much more than it would normally do to try and lay those suspicions to rest. Very interesting. Um, so, Sarah, if, uh, you you looked at uh, President Trump's reaction to this. Uh, he he had to he called uh, FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn to the White House a couple of times to kind of I don't know if it was to uh, you know get an explanation of what's going on or to kind of get him to speed things up even more than they already are over at FDA or what? So, um, yes, Stephen Hahn was called to the White House twice this week. I should um, add that the first time was before the um, UK's um, clearance, although there are some people who suspect the White House maybe had a heads up this was possibly coming um, and that, you know, the U.S. was sort of going to be the first, not be the first. Um, Western kind of nation to clear this vaccine. Um, it, it seems like the White House, you know, again, is just continuing to push Han to move faster, that they were suggesting that, you know, maybe they could skip the advisory committee. They have planned this December 8th summit um, about COVID vaccines a couple of days ahead of the advisory committee. And I think there's been some thought process that maybe they wanted that to be like they're, um, you know, rolling out of it. Um, I mean, it's it it's sort of seems a little bit funny to me because it's like how much does, you know, a couple of days at this point really um, matter. But I think for people who are watching this process very closely, the reason why, um, you know, this last minute White House interference is so concerning is because, you know, the FDA and Stephen Hahn have certainly had their share of kind of criticism during the management of the COVID-19 crisis and questions about whether they were get granting EUAs for therapeutics um, based more on political pressure than, you know, the credibility of the data or the amount of data they had. Uh, and it, it seems like, for the most part, FDA has done a good job with the vaccines of, 
you know, laying out solid guidance that's gotten praised by scientists and so forth and really trying to be above that political conversation. Um, but still, we have a lot of vaccine hesitancy in this country. And um, so people have been worried that this last minute interference will just increase that and muddy the waters of whether this was a science, you know, based decision or whether it was politically motivated. Yeah, it's a <clears throat> this this is a just a you know, I mean things have been strange for a while, you know, this whole process. A lot of things we're not used to seeing have happened and this was just another one. Uh yeah, I, I I'm I'm just uh, I I just don't I don't know. I don't really know what to think of him being called to the White House twice, you know, over over this and asking why, you know, why aren't you got why isn't the FDA done yet? I I I'm I just don't I don't I don't know what what that accomplished other than just to provide an update, which may have been all that it was. What's the yeah. uh, the classic uh, phrase that it's sort of uh, shocking, but not surprising that sort of kind of there's a um, you know, it's still sort of uh, there's always some sort of kind of fresh uh, uh, level of uh, uh, problem that seems to be created, even though it's sort of the same uh, same pattern again and again. Yeah, I, I also think to me what's just the most interesting about this is um, if the U.S. had, um, you know, led by the Trump White House, had done a better job kind of managing the pandemic, I think really a few days or a few weeks of, you know, difference between um, an EUA would really just not be significant. Um, and it's because the White House has really relied on a vaccine as like the sole get out of the pandemic strategy and tended to um, avoid implementing other public health measures fully that they're so anxious or desperate for a vaccine. And it's almost like their failures in some ways has put this extra pressure on the FDA um, that I would imagine for FDA scientists and the folks that, you know, um, Peter Marks has talked about have been, you know, working on Thanksgiving and, you know, working on the weekends and 17 hour days, um, you know, they're just probably like, how, how do you expect us to go any, any faster? Couldn't you, yeah, have, yeah. you know, given us a little bit of a, uh, a break. Yeah. He, he said that yesterday as well, that, uh, you know, that some of his people were eating turkey sandwiches and reviewing documents on Thanksgiving, which, you know, uh -huh. it's like, I was like, oh, okay, you know, I get, you know, it's a, a proof that everyone is super, super dedicated to this, but you, you just feel like, you know, how, how much, you know, could you, you know, like, yes, everyone could work 24 hours a day and just, you know, drink coffee constantly, but, you know, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know, you know, I mean, really, I don't know how much faster they could possibly go. And, yeah, and that was something that Peter Marks addressed. You know, he said like, yeah, you know, MHRA has approved it already. He said like, we're, you know, he's like, we're being very careful. We do things a little differently. We look at the individual, you know, patient reports and and those sorts of things. And uh, not and uh, um, and you know, he's talking about like we find all the copy and paste errors and in, in the charts and things like that that were. You know, and make sure those are, you know, those are fixed. And but he said we want to be really, really careful, and we want to be extremely confident when we make a decision. And you know, he said I mean, he seemed to be okay with the fact that you know they're going to be, you know, they're going to need another week or you know, another couple weeks at least to you know to get this finished. 
I have to say, I, I would prefer my, um, you know, the FDA drug reviewers be slightly well rested when reviewing <laughs> all this data, right? I mean, yes. It's, it's like you on your pilot flying your airplane, you know, you. You, you tend to prefer he'd get some sleep rather than fly you before, um, on 24 yeah. hours of sleep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just some sort kind of safety clock out that the uh, reviewers have to do. Otherwise, they're not actually uh, performing their tasks uh, adequately if they're sort of still looking over tables, uh, you know, uh, 14 hours into their into their day or something. Yeah. That's, uh, He's had to tell them to take weekends off, Yeah, which, uh, you know, is, you know, bad enough that they, they can't take a Saturday or a Sunday if, you know, without working, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, they, you know, they, I mean, you wonder if at some point someone's just going to declare like an FDA holiday and, you know, when this is all over and just say like, okay, everybody gets two weeks, just go. And you know, be, well, be, because they, I mean, I, I wonder if there's, I mean, there's, I'm guessing there's a lot of people over there who haven't taken a day off in months, months and months and months. And we're talking like not even taking weekends off. So it is remarkable to think sort of kind of that the you know the the approval will come uh, you know within perhaps a uh, a month of uh, submission and obviously sort of FDA has been doing the same uh, um, rolling review approach that uh, um, happened in the UK as uh, um, in described. But uh, you know given all these accounts of just sort of how the the crazy hours that everyone's working, I, I wonder if it's actually um, faster or just sort of more compressed in terms of sort of, kind of what they're actually doing in terms of the uh, the review. Yeah, it it seems to indicate that the the review is more is more compressed. Well, some of the development has been more compressed um, in terms of how the clinical trials have been done and and so forth. And they've been reviewing, they've been getting data in real time, um, sort of like what Ian was talking about with um, MHRA um, as it's come, you know, as it's been become available. So they've seen um, they've seen data already. Uh, before they were seeing data before the the um, EUA application actually came in, um, but there's still you know there was that's not to discount the amount of work that they had to do once it came in. There was still a lot of stuff that needed to be done, but they did have a head start, so to speak, with the data. Sure. Yeah, it's it's interesting on the rolling review because the European medicines agencies um, using that kind of review as well for the vaccines to um, get them authorized for use across Europe, um, and they've also not exactly veiled criticism, but they ha they have talked about the MHRA process about perhaps being a little bit too telescoped. Um, but then you get into looking at the relative merits of the MHRA system and that of the EMA, whereas the EMA has a, a panel which is composed of experts from 27 member states. So they all have to agree amongst each other and they probably have more um, procedures to follow as well, uh, administrative procedures. If, and uh, before they can get to a recommendation for authorization. So it's quite interesting that you see all the, the different agencies commenting on each other's practices, which is something we haven't really seen that much before in the public eye, at least. It's a great point, Ian. That, you know, there's always this sort of this uh, um, tension between sort of kind of, you know, who approved it first, who approved it faster, between sort of kind of uh, US, uh, um, EU, uh, Japan's often in that mix when sort of kind of uh, academics or uh, you know, think tanks make those comparisons, but now with uh, Brexit, there's a uh, another front uh, opening up in these approval wars, and uh, you know, perhaps a, a symbol of uh, um, 
the lack of decorum everywhere, you may see sort of more direct criticism of uh, the various practices between the uh, different regulators. That'll be interesting to watch. Well, certainly from the UK, I mean, we've got no shortage of um, certain politicians attacking the EU at every opportunity. <laughs> um, and this is one where they tried and failed when they tried to cite Brexit as a reason for the MHRA being able to move so quickly. Yeah, it's, a, it's also a, another uh, kind of, a, there, there's been arguments for harmonization, increased harmonization among regulators as well. And, you know, to a certain extent, some of it's already happened, but this could be another way of, you know, a re, another reason at least to even to try and think about that. Although, you know, there's all kinds of hurdles, legal and otherwise, you know, that, you know, from to prevent us from doing that. But, uh, you know, I'm sure there'll be case studies done on the, you know, among academics or others that, you know, look at that as well. Um, interestingly, the, the uh, just to kind of put a bow on the, the U.S. vaccine uh, uh, effort here, the, the advisory committees are coming up. Uh, December 10th is the one for Pfizer and BioNTech, and then December 17th is for the Moderna vaccine. Uh, Peter Marks also said, said that they'll need about another week once the, the advisory committee meeting is concluded, assuming everything goes well to get it done. Do you all believe that they could finish it in a week? I, I, I think so. I think uh, um, Mark seemed to be sort of uh, um, giving, uh, giving the maximum uh, uh, amount of potential time there. We've heard uh, um, Stephen Hahn say a few days, uh, um, uh, you know, Warp Speed uh, advisor uh, uh, Slowy saying that uh, uh, it could be the next day. So uh, um, Mark saying a week probably uh, is the uh, um, the outside estimate of sort of kind of where they're uh, where they're thinking. We're kind of uh, you know has room to uh, um, uh, be impressive by uh, by beating that uh, projection. Yeah, I think at this point it seems like what they're basically trying to do is almost like pretend like there's not going to be an advisory committee and kind of have everything prepared. So assuming nothing unexpected comes up in their review or at the advisory committee, they can kind of be pretty set to go. But they're still up. It seems like the officials are still leaving open this clear, you know, statement that we're going to listen to the advisory committee. And if there is something we need to address, we'll take the time to address it. Yeah, I think that's kind of still the big the big question here is what what's what are the advisory committee members going to discuss and you know what problems are they going to are they going to have and then what will the fda do if anything to address those problems if they can yeah i think we we remember from the the late october meeting there was a there were questions about you know the um the safety follow-up standard and the efficacy endpoints and so forth and you know it was a little too late to kind of fix the guidance that they had already put out but uh you know, it'll do, that'll, that'll be kind of like what everyone will be watching, I think. So finally, in our non-COVID related story, we take a look at the future leader of the FDA and provide a little bit of a history lesson maybe. Uh, reports surfaced this week that two finalists had emerged, David Kessler, who ran the FDA from 1990 to 1997, and Josh Sarfstein, who was FDA's Principal Deputy Commissioner from 2009 to 2011. They joined Luciana Borio, a former uh, Chief Scientist at the agency, who's also rumored to be under consideration for the job. Uh, but the uh, 
The interesting part of this is that if uh, Dr. Kessler is confirmed, he would become only the second FDA commissioner to serve in two separate to serve two separate terms, uh, which is you know which is just uh, that just uh, I just found that very interesting. Walter Campbell is the only commissioner to have the job twice. He was there from 1921 to 1924, and then again from 1927 to 1944. An interesting, another little interesting tidbit is that he presided over several name changes to, including to the FDA. He had, uh, when he was there, insecticide was dropped from the FDA, Food, Food and Drug Administration name, and making it only Food and Drug Administration. Um, so I'll open it up to, to you all. Do you, do you think the Senate is going to give Dr. Kessler another term? Is that, you know, do, are we ready for a, you know, return trip for for a you know former commissioner don't all jump at once <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw uh sarah's uh, light flashing i wanted to uh, defer but uh, um i guess i'll uh, um uh, uh jump in uh, uh to uh, um the and say i uh i don't know um but uh, uh i would uh, uh be surprised if the uh um, uh, the senator kind of gave uh, um, gave a smooth ride to uh, uh, David Kessler. I think uh, obviously sort of kind of whoever um, uh, Biden picks will have to be sort of uh, um, uh, carefully calibrated to sort of meet the uh, um, the concern of a uh, Republican Senate. Uh, assuming, of course, the uh, Democrats don't win the uh, Georgia uh, runoffs uh, at the beginning of January and uh, actually take control of the Senate, but. Uh, um, you know that you you could make arguments uh, either way that's sort of kind of that uh, um it's going to sort of uh, uh rise and fall based on the uh the nominee uh, um uh themselves whoever that at uh, ends up being or you could uh, certainly see sort of kind of a uh, more general Merrick Garland uh, situation in which the uh um the Senate is uh, fundamentally uninterested in uh, having a uh, a functioning Biden administration uh, um and just won't approve uh um, any nominees in certain areas, like you can see them, uh, you know, approving a uh, uh, defense department nominees, but perhaps uh, um, no one from the uh, the EPA, depending on sort of kind of what uh, um, uh, politics the uh, um, the uh, the situation demands inside the uh, Republican caucus. Um, where FDA fits on that spectrum, uh, a little uh, unclear to me. Obviously, it's not, um, you know, a uh, uh, a vital constitutional mission like uh, defense, as Republicans see it, but it's not perhaps as uh, um, uh, you know uh, cantankerous a regulator as uh, perhaps uh, EPA has seen. That uh, the pharmaceutical industry uh, actually uh, um, you know uh, appreciates uh, solid regulation. I mean, their business model is based on uh, gatekeeping. That's why they spend all this money on uh, clinical trials. So uh, you know they think they would uh, want a uh, a functioning FDA, and to the extent that they uh, believe the Biden nominee will sort of uh, um, uh, help drive uh, uh, efficient and proper operation of the, uh, um, the agency, they may sort of kind of try and sort of put some pressure on uh, um, the Republicans uh, to uh, um, to uh, you know have a hearing and uh, um, to uh, vote approval of that uh, um, of that nominee. Uh, um, yeah, it's we've 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 certainly seen quick FDA nominations in in confirmations, but we've also seen really long ones. I believe it was um, uh, Mark McClellan didn't actually get confirmed for was it 
like something like 20 months or something like that. I mean, FDA went without a commissioner for, you know, more than a year because for various reasons. But uh, Stephen Hahn was, uh, you know, didn't have to wait too long. And, uh, you know, Scott Gottlieb didn't wait too long, you know, in the grand scheme of things either. So, yeah, it definitely could be uh, we could see a quick one depending on, uh, you know, the the mood at the time. And we, but we also could see a, uh, uh, you know, an extended, uh, you know, wait on I would think because of the pandemic, the Democrats would put more pressure on, you know, Republicans to move faster with these health appointments. You know, you don't want necessarily want the messaging of the Republicans are holding up confirmation of these types of positions during a pandemic. But that certainly never stopped political, um, you know, bickering, I guess, before, as we've seen with the, you know, this the Congress can't get their act together to somehow come to some agreement on a, you know, a next set of pandemic response and stimulus. So politics is certainly sort of trumped, um, maybe public need there. I, I think the interesting thing to me about Kessler is he, he started out as a Republican appointee, but I don't think he's really associated at all with the Republican party in any way anymore. And he's probably one of the most activists, um, perhaps, FDA commissioners um, in recent years in terms of taking on tobacco and so forth. Um, but he certainly would have like interesting experience having been at FDA for the height of HIV and kind of changing drug, you know, approval um, pathways because of it, though. I sort of question whether he really wants to at this point in his life. Um, do another stint at a job he's already had and done when he could kind of be sort of semi-retired. But um, obviously you, we see people like Tony Fauci and so forth who just, you know, they, they're just, their DNA seems to be to built to, you know, kind of work as hard as they can, no matter their age or place in life. So. And Tony Fauci's taking on more work. I, I guess he, he's, uh, he's going to be uh Joe Biden's uh, health advisor, in addition to running uh, NIAID now uh, in the new administration. So, <clears throat> well, that's all for this week. Uh, special thanks to Ian Schofield for taking time to be with us today. Uh, for more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes or SoundCloud by searching for Pharma Intelligence Podcasts. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Matt Hobbs, and Ian Schofield. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.